0: Welcome to this podcast from the Stevenson-Harwood International Employment and Incentives Group, a special edition as part of the Employment Law podcast series. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm an associate in Stevenson-Harwood's employment practice. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the issue of funding end-of-service gratuity, which is a form of statutory severance payment also widely considered as a form of retirement saving that is present in various forms in a number of countries across the Middle East. Today, we will focus on the UAE regime, but much of the concepts will have a broader application. Typically, the end-of-service gratuity is accrued on the balance sheet as a liability, but is used as part of the company's normal working capital. To help us explore this topic, I have with me Barbara Allen, partner and head of Stevenson Highwood's Employment Incentive Practice, I'm Tanya Berryman, who is Head of Performance and Reward Management at InterTrust, the global trust fund and corporate service provider, who will be discussing a real-life example of how a company can manage the risk of unfunded end-of-service gratuity liability. To start, for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, I will outline what end-of-service gratuity is and where it fits into the UAE legal framework for the provision of retirement benefits. UAE and GCC nationals working in government and private service sectors are eligible to receive state pension. UAE nationals who are ineligible to participate in the state pension scheme, along with expatriate employees, are entitled to receive an end-of-service gratuity in accordance with employment laws in the UAE. So, Barbara, in your experience, is it common for employers of expatriate employees and UAE nationals who aren't eligible to receive state pension to provide occupational pension schemes?
1: No. No. Occupational pension schemes are not common, and most employers will simply provide the end-of-service gratuity. In some cases, employers will enhance the entitlement as part of their remuneration and incentive strategy. Having said that, it is being widely reported that there are plans to enact legislation to provide for the introduction of occupational pension schemes in line with international market practice to cover those groups of employees.
0: Are there any eligibility criteria for employees to meet to be entitled to end of service gratuity?
1: Yes. Employees must have at least one year of continuous service before they'll be eligible to accrue any entitlement. In certain circumstances, that entitlement may be forfeited if the employment ends for certain reasons, for example, for gross misconduct. Also, depending on where the employment is based, an employee's entitlement may be reduced if the employee resigns. There are also some slight differences between those employed on limited or fixed-term contracts and those employed on an unlimited term or permanent basis.
0: Thank you. So how is the entitlement calculated?
1: The formula for calculating the benefit is based on length of service and remuneration. When I say remuneration, this excludes the value of any benefits in kind or allowances like housing and transportation. So generally, employees should get 21 days pay for each year of service for the first five years and 30 days pay for each year of service thereafter and this is capped at two years' pay.
0: Given how central end-of-service gratuity is to the benefits, is there any obligation on employers to ensure they have sufficient reserves to pay out?
1: Well, some companies will have some funding in place to cover their liability. However, it's fairly safe to say that many, if not most, employers don't. It's not currently mandatory for employers to do
0: so. So that must be a concern for employees in the current economic climate. How aware are employers of their end-of-service gratuity liability? Is it the kind of thing that is closely tracked, along with other financial liabilities?
1: Well, under a relatively new federal law that took effect from July 2016, companies outside the financial free zones, so the Dubai International Financial Centre and the Abu Dhabi Global Market, which have their own commercial laws, are obliged to evaluate and report in their financial statements their liability for end-of-service gratuity. That way, it should be clear what employers owe and how much money has been set aside for it.
0: So that should help concentrate the minds of employers on ensuring that they have reserves set aside?
1: Yes, theoretically it should, but the legal obligation to save is still missing and the law I've just referred to doesn't apply across the whole of the UAE. As you've already alluded to, Richard, end-of-service gratuity value that's not adequately ringed fenced is at risk if a company is sold or put into liquidation. In times of recession, when cash reserves are tight, a company may not be able to afford to lay off its employees because the subsequent end-of-service gratuity payment can't be funded. This further drains company resources at a time when tight management of costs is imperative. Also, the listing or sale of a business could be adversely affected by there being unfunded gratuity liabilities.
0: Thank you. So, Tanya, from your experience, what practical solutions are there for companies who are looking for a way to hedge their end-of-service gratuity obligations?
2: Well, setting aside all or a part of the accrued end-of-service gratuity into an employee benefit trust can enable a company to meet its end-of-service gratuity debts as they fall due and to retain a pool of cash or assets against which to draw in times when a higher number of leavers are anticipated.
0: So why might an employee benefit trust be a good hedging solution?
2: An employee benefit trust is good for a number of reasons. Just to state a few, it protects the employee's awards within the terms of the plan rules and legislation. An important factor is that hedged assets held in a discretionary trust are bankruptcy remote. Employees can take comfort knowing that the value accruing for their benefit has been ring-fenced away from the company's creditors. The cost of of end-of-service gratuity is controlled as to timing and quantum and is matched to liabilities. The business decides what proportion to hedge and the timing of contributions to the trust. Contributions paid into the trust can be managed to better returns. The trust deed can be drafted to enable surplus value to be transferred back to the employer under certain circumstances. And finally, it provides independent, professional and regulated oversight of vendor service criteria and employee interests. Both the company and its employees can take comfort in dealing with a regulated trustee with experience in managing employee incentive plans, together with professional accountants, lawyers and investment specialists. The trust can be audited on an annual basis by external, independent auditors.
0: I can see from that why an employee benefit trust might be a good idea. Can you share any examples of how this has worked in practice?
2: Yes, certainly. We set up a trust-based hedging solution for a bank in the GCC in the form of an occupational savings scheme, the main objectives of which were to provide cash benefits on termination of employment, to hedge the bank's legal and contractual end-of-service gratuity obligations, to provide a savings opportunity that is matched by the bank for all full-time employees, to retain local employees through a five-year vesting process of employer contributions, and to retain expat employees by offering the greater of the employer's contribution plus investment returns or their contractual leaving indemnity payment. We established the plan around 10 years ago, and it's still operating today. Let me take you through some of the key features. The bank contributes a fixed percentage of salary every month. If the employee also contributes, the bank matches up to a further fixed percentage. Further voluntary contributions are accepted, but without additional matching by the employer. For local employees, their employer-matching contributions vest on a straight-line basis over five years. Payments to employees are made via payroll on leaving employment, and are subject to the deduction of any loans outstanding to the employer at the time of leaving. Termination for cause results in a loss of any additional accrued employer contributions. Member contributions and any end-of-service gratuity entitlement are paid. The trust assets are invested in accordance with the bank's investment committee's directions, and each employee and the employer has online access to view their savings, vesting criteria and documents related to the plan.
0: Tanya, thank you for sharing those details. That's been a very interesting insight into the ongoing discussion around funding end-of-service gratuity. As we've heard, employee benefit trusts can be a fairly simple and cost-effective way of holding and managing cash and assets relating to end-of-service gratuity. You can find more about the trustee and plan administration services offered by InterTrust by going to their website at www.intertrustgroup.com. Thanks also to listeners for joining us for this special edition podcast. Don't forget that you can listen again or subscribe to the whole employment series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or visiting our website at www.shlegal.com.